You're listening to Rockland Community Church, connecting all generations to Jesus. Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Well, my, uh, my assumption is that every person in this room has some kind of priorities in their life. Um, and if you and I were just sitting down, maybe getting a cup of coffee or something, and I were to say, what are the things that are actual priorities in your life? You would give a list. And if I were to say, now let's look at your bank account and your calendar and those kinds of things, the things that, that you, know, you worry about, that you lay awake at night thinking about, let's look at that list. And the reality is for many of us in different times in life as well, this list of what we say matters and this list of what we're living out that matters can vary. Sometimes just a little bit, sometimes it can vary wildly. And what is between those two that makes them different? I think the answer is distractions. As Christians, we've got, God has called us to have kingdom priorities in him. And the reality is over time, we can get pulled this way. And so we need to identify what are those distractions that can pull our hearts and minds from him. You heard it in this story right here. It's very brief. Um, This true story of two people, Mary and Martha. Let's look at it. Verse 38 says, Now they went on their way, Jesus and his disciples. Jesus entered a village. A woman named Martha, there's number one, welcomed him into her house, and she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. So you heard it read. You've got Mary, Martha. You've got Mary that's sitting at the feet of Jesus, and then you've got Martha who is cleaning the home, welcoming him in, making sure there's food and dusting and all that kind of stuff. She is busy serving. If you need to remember which one is Mary and which one is Martha, you can remember, remember Martha Stewart. <laughs> all right? She is there. She is has putting out the... I can't think of a thing she would put out, the candles or the tablecloths, the clean, whatever. Like she's the homemaker. She's getting everything ready for Jesus. So you'll watch during the message when I forget which is which, you'll see me go, Martha Stewart. Yeah, Martha, you know, you'll watch me do that. But Martha and Mary, you've got Martha and then you have Mary. Mary is the one that sits and listens at the feet of Jesus and Martha is in there busy and not sitting at the feet of Jesus. And so there's times we read this story and go, Martha's doing the good thing, or sorry, Mary's doing the good thing, Martha's doing the bad thing, be a Mary, not a Martha. And that's sort of true, but it way oversimplifies it, and and we miss out on something pretty important. One of the reasons why it's dangerous, one of the reasons we see it like that, that Mary's the good one, Martha's the bad one, is you may or may not realize this. As Westerners, we are wired to have this, this kind of good guy, bad guy, the hero and the villain, the protagonist and the antagonist, if you will, 
in the story. It's in, in every story that we see and it infiltrates our life. You've got Luke Skywalker and you've got Darth Vader. You've got Dorothy and you've got the Wicked Witch. You have Indiana Jones and the Nazis, I guess, all the bad guys, the Nazis. Gladiator, Commodus, you've got all the Avengers, you've got Thanos. I'm trying to get one from like every generation to make sure we're covered here. But that's what it is. Watch a movie and you can see you got good guy, bad guy. You've got the hero and you've got the villain and that's what really drives the story forward. And we're wired to see the world that way. Happens in literature as well. Sherlock and Moriarty. We'll see who reads in here. Robin Hood and Prince John or Oliver Twist and Fagin or Monks is actually the bad guy behind the whole thing. But anyway, go read a book. But the same thing in books as well. You've got the, you've got the person, the good guy that's driving everything, and then you've got the villain, um, sometimes very overt, sometimes behind the scenes. And so we're wired to see the world that way. We pick up the Bible and we start to read it that way. Like, you know, the story of that really evil innkeeper in the Christmas story that when this guy comes with this pregnant woman and he goes, we need a place. And he says, no, and slams the door in her face. You see it in every Christmas pageant, except he's not in the Bible. All it says is there was no room for them at the inn. But we can kind of read that in a little bit. And so we put it into the stories to be able to, to, to make, have a story that makes sense. We've got a, the nemesis. We've got the evil person in the story. We have to be careful. So, so we take that, and then oftentimes it happens in culture as well, that we have heroes and we have villains. A real danger in that. We can cling then, if, if we do this, we can cling to imperfect people, because they're the heroes, and not, acknowledge, not realize that they have flaws. And then we can also see people who are uh, on the other team as completely flawed and never give them a chance and never listen, think they have anything ever redemptive to say or to do. And that's what causes this division in our culture. This happens in politics, obviously. It happens uh, in all sorts of situations. I'm not keeping up enough, but I'm watching. I've seen some clips about Johnny Depp and Amber Heard, and there's a trial going on right now. I don't know who's right. I haven't been paying enough attention to speak intelligently about it. But everybody on Twitter knows who's right or wrong. And I just wonder, like, wow, I didn't realize all these people were sitting in the courtroom and knew them and knew the backstory. Like, people knew who was right and wrong before trials even started. And so it's one of them is, and they're on both sides, by the way, so one of them is perfect and one of them is pure evil. And that's the only way that this is seen. And so that, that, that kind of a mindset can infiltrate our culture and be really, really dangerous. The obvious result is division in our culture. It's got to be my team against your evil team. And then the other thing, you know, I'm, I'm thinking, I was thinking about is um, it's easy to not forgive. Like right now, if, if you saw, I didn't see the Oscars, but I saw the clip from the Oscars with Will Smith and Chris Rock, and I'm thinking if he were to all of a sudden repent, d do every single thing we could hope for, repent, confess, donate money to something, uh, you know, whatever it might be that he would go through the steps, and they said, you know what, we're actually going to let him back in the academy or um, somebody that's canceled the movie he's doing, we're actually going to do that now because he's repented and he's moved on and he's turned and there would still be something in us that goes, no, like he should pay. Like there should be something bad that happens to him because we can take an action and we can demonize the entire person. And I'm not saying we should you know, let him back in or whatever. I'd be, I'd be a little suspicious and things like that. But you see what happens when we just say this person's sin in their life, all of a sudden we go, that's who they are. They're the enemy, and now I wish bad things for them. And now we become people who lack forgiveness in our lives. This is big in the culture, but when, when you see this story, if you see 
Mary as the good one and Martha as the bad one, you're gonna miss the point of what he's trying to say. If we see Martha as the villain in the story, as she's the one who gets everything wrong, let's look at this for a minute. The other time that they come, there's a couple times, but one main time that they come up, Mary and Martha, is in John chapter 11. And in John chapter 11, it talks about the sisters, Mary and Martha, and their brother, whose name is Lazarus. Lazarus, I never say his name right. Lazarus. Lazarus is sick, and they send word to Jesus, and they say, the one that you love is sick. Can you come and can you heal him? He, Jesus um, kind of dilly-dallies a little bit, and so Lazarus dies, and Martha hears that Jesus was coming. And so what happens? Mary goes at the house to back to the house and just sits there. She's really good at just sitting there, apparently. That's her spiritual gift. She goes back and just sits there. Martha's the one that gets up and goes out and does something, and she goes out to see Jesus. Listen to Martha and see how villainous she sounds in this. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. She understands the supernatural power of Jesus. And then, and then she says, but even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Her brother has died, and she's saying, but I still believe and I still have faith in you. Jesus said, your brother will rise again. Now, what would happen if he told the disciples that, do you think? Remember when Jesus said he was going to, that he was going to be handed over to, to the evil people, he was going to die a criminal's death, and he's going to rise again the third day? Oh, Lord, that'll never be. What does Martha say when she hears that? Martha said, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She's theologically sharp. She gets it. She believes in this idea of the resurrection. She believes in who Jesus is. This is where we get that phrase, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he says, do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ the son of God who is coming into the world. She says, I believe it's you, the one right in front of me. She calls him Lord. She calls him Christ, the Messiah, the promised one from the Old Testament. And she talks about his divinity. You are the son of God. She believes who this guy is. And so if you read this and you go, Mary was good and Martha was bad, we're gonna miss the whole point of what he's trying to say. She's not the villain here. She was right in many instances. In fact, she's doing a good thing. It's, when they got there, it says Martha is the one that said, I'm gonna welcome him in. This is a wonderful thing. She's welcoming him into her house. She's, she's getting it ready for him. So it's not that she's a horrible human being, but she missed something. And that's what Jesus is going to address. It says, but Martha was distracted. With what? With much serving. Martha was distracted. The word for distracted is the word, um, we get the word um, uh, uh, spao is what it is. It's to draw, like to draw a sword. And the idea here is distracted is you are drawn away or you are pulled away from something else with, in this case, by much serving. In other words, here is Jesus right there ready to speak and something else pulls her back from being with him and sitting with him. 
She is a doer. She is around the house cleaning. She is around the house getting it set up so Jesus can come in and teach as many people as he wants to teach. Culturally, this is what women did, that people would come in, they would get the house ready, all the men would sit at the feet of the rabbi, whoever it was, and they would listen, and then they would pass it on to everybody else in the family. And so she's doing something very culturally, exactly what she's supposed to do. But what's happening is Jesus is there, and something's pulling her back. This is an action that she is doing for Jesus, is actually taking her from relationship with Jesus. That's what's happening. We have any doers here today? The reason why it's, it's good that we don't see Martha as some kind of villain, but we just see as her making a mistake in this point, is because we actually need Martha's. Like anybody got a to-do list, and you wake up every morning and you look at your to-do list, and if you're real honest, you'd go, there's no possible way I can get all this done today. But instead of admitting that, we just get to the end of the day and go, I can't believe I didn't get everything done. When you're like, come on. We knew we couldn't get it all done. A lot of times doing in our busyness, even if it's for Christ or for good ends, can actually take us from this relationship with Jesus. Imagine if we had a church and there were all Marys and no Marthas, that there's no doers, that nobody's getting anything done. Imagine if we didn't have any bread for the Lord's Supper. You don't even know who brings that, do you? People behind the scenes volunteer over email and they bring that to get it all set up. Or imagine if no one comes in and picks up between services and someone walks in and there's a tissue and and paper or something like that here. We have Marthas that come in that take care of those things. Imagine no donuts. (laughs) Now I'm hitting you where it hurts, huh? Imagine if we came here and... um, on Sunday, the doors were locked because no one opened them. You know who opens the doors every Sunday? I'm not going to tell you. You have to find out. Or imagine if you came here and there was a big sign on the door that it's no longer our church because um, nobody has paid any of the bills for the church. Do you know who pays the bills for the church so we can be here on Sunday mornings? It's important. It's behind the scenes. It's not a lot of credit. We need doers. Like, Can you imagine a church of just Marys and no Marthas? So we gotta be careful about making it sound like, well, if you're just a Martha, I mean, that's nice and all, but really we need Marys. Listen, the Marthas are incredibly important in the life of the church. And here's what she said. So she was distracted by much serving, and then she went up to him, to Jesus, and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. Hey, she's listening to you. She's at your feet. So there's, there's something of you're the teacher and I'm in submission to your teaching is what it's, what's happening. Like you teach and I want to hear and listen and receive it. And so she's going, instead of going, hey, Mary, get up here and help me. She goes, uh, hey, Jesus, she's listening to you. Why don't you go tell her that her, her cultural duty that she's supposed to do is she's supposed to be in here with me helping. Tell her that she's supposed to do that. Is everybody, I, I'm guessing everybody in this room has been in this predicament. I am holding up my end of the bargain, and she is not. What I'm doing is so much better than what he is doing. We can feel very superior in it. And really what she's doing is going, Mary ought to be doing something else. And what's implied is what I'm doing is better than what she's doing. And what Jesus is going to say is actually, in this instance, what she's doing is right. It's better than what you're doing. And so he's going to have to educate her. 
So she's not bad. She just has this, her priorities out of place. And in this moment, she should be doing something else. And so verse 41, the Lord answered, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. That phrase, good portion, we look and go, that seems really important. Jesus said she chose the one thing, and we're going, all right, tell us what the one thing is. And then if you read different translations, that word for good portion varies wildly in different translations. I think the ESV does a pretty good job saying the good portion or the good thing. Um, uh, Maybe even better would be she's chosen the better portion. Like she's chosen the better thing is really what he's trying to communicate here. And then you go, okay, well, what is that? And then notice what he says. He says, which will not be taken away from her. So somehow in that moment, Jesus is there. Mary is just sitting there. She's not getting anything done. Martha's very effective, very efficient. She's getting a ton of things done. And Jesus says, she's chosen the better thing. What is the better thing? Well, it's the thing that can never be taken from her. It's something that lasts. So what's he saying? Well, who is sitting there talking to her? Well, it's Jesus. And if you remember in John's gospel, it says in the beginning was the word that he's referred to as the word, that when he is speaking, he is speaking the words of God and Mary is sitting and listening and taking in the very words of God himself. In Isaiah chapter 40, the grass withers, the flowers fade. That's a reference to people. But the word of God stands forever. Psalm 119, forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Later in Psalm 119, the sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Psalm 33, the counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart from generation to generation. Psalm 117, the truth of the Lord is everlasting. Matthew 24, Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will not pass away. In Isaiah 55, so shall my word be as it goes from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty. Or maybe you've heard it shall not return void, but it shall accomplish that that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. As we read the word of God, speaking the very words of God, and God said, no one can ever take from you what you are hearing. What's happening? She is sitting under the word of God. She is understanding the truth that God would have her understand. She is sitting with Jesus. She is learning about Jesus. One commentator says it like this, what's necessary is to sit at Jesus' feet the way Mary did and to listen to what he says and in this way come to know Jesus for sure. This picture shows us Mary's devotion to Christ, specifically her commitment to his teaching. Mary loved Jesus and his word. That comes first. That we understand God, who he is, what he has done, and then we go do. Or the way it's summed up is that um, we are about sitting before serving. We are about sitting before serving. 
our uh, mission statement here at Rockland, we always say connecting all generations to Jesus because we think that's all people will remember. But you can see it posted outside. And it says, as we stand for the truth of the gospel, extend God's grace to all people and raise the next generation to do the same. We stand for truth and then we extend grace to anybody and everybody. We have to sit under the word of God. We have to know what God asks of us or what God commands of us, I should say. There's a... Um, if, if you grew up Presbyterian, you might recognize this, the Westminster Catechism. A catechism is a question and answer format that you use in order, they would actually teach children to help, them, um, to help them learn deep truths of the faith. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, you might remember some of it. Question number one, what is the chief end of man? And then it says, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Question number two, what, listen to this language, what rule hath God given to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him? In other words, that's chief end of man. Now, what do we, how do we know that? And he says, the word of God, which is contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, is the only rule to direct us on how we may glorify and enjoy him. And then look at question number three. What do the scriptures, what does the word of God principally teach? The scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. What are we to believe about him and then we say, and what do you require of us? And now we will go to do it. Hearing and obeying Jesus is the one thing. When Jesus comes to the village to teach, in other words, you sit and you listen and you learn and you submit to his teaching. Mary realizes that something big is happening and she doesn't miss it. She wants to sit. Sitting at his feet is this um, a sign of I'm paying attention to what you're saying and I will submit to the teaching that you are about to give. And so that's what would happen is the teacher would sit and everybody or would, well, sometimes they would stand and people would sit around, sitting at the feet. That's what they're doing. There's at least three, there's so many implications of this. Let me give you three that came to mind for me. Um, number one, a church, our requirement is that we stand up and we gather around this that we gather around Jesus Christ and what he's done is revealed in the scripture and then we figure out what does he require of us. And if a church doesn't gather around this, they are no longer a church. Mary is the picture of the faithful church doing the one thing necessary to say, what is God's word for me? Why do we have, um, we have vacation Bible school? Why do we have Martha's behind the scene serving punch and cookies and things for the kids so that they can hear the word of God. If, if we're just serving punch and cookies and that's it, that's nice. Like it keeps them out of trouble and they have a positive experience being at church and we give them back to parents on a sugar rush and everything, which is always fun to watch. But the reality is if it's all punch and cookies, what are we doing? But we have Marthas that do that so that we can share with them the word of God. Why do we have Martha's serving coffee and donuts on Sunday morning? Because we're a community that builds relationship and connects together. We gather under the word of God to hear what he has for us. Our students are going, um, yeah, next week they're going go-karting. The point of our student ministry isn't to have kids go go-karting. In fact, they're going after the worship service. So they're in here for the worship service next week. And then right after that, they're gonna go go-karting. The reason we're going go-karting is so that they can build relationships and they can have meaningful Christians, like have meaningful, deep conversations with them and get to know them that we might be able to instruct them in the ways 
of the Lord. That's what it's for. I pray the church never fails to honor the Marthas among us that work behind the scenes. It can be a, um, <clears throat> a little bit of a distraction, meaning um, if there's a church, that this is a big thing in churches today that um, <clears throat> at different times pastors will stand up and they will have a neat little outline and kind of sprinkle a little Jesus or maybe throw in a Bible verse here and there. Um, I'm gonna caution you against that. Uh, by all means, I don't mean, well, Rockland does everything perfect, but, um, but we gather together, not around Jim's outline that he's put together, but around the word of God to see what God has for us. And churches like that, because we always have people that are, that are visiting or watching online or something like that. Churches like that um, can be a distraction because it can feel like a church, but it's probably not quite if they're not gathered around the word of God. There's a lot of great churches that get together and they go serve the communities and they do a whole bunch of things, but they're not gathered around the word of God. And if Jesus could talk to them, he would say, you have missed the greater portion. You have missed the greater thing. And then for you as a congregation, when we come here, we come and we gather and we are saying, I want to hear from God. I want to hear what he has for me in his word. That's our, that's our heart's cry. That's our posture as we come in here is not, I hope the sermon's good or I hope the music is good or something like that, but it's, I want to hear from God what he has for me today. <clears throat> Second thing is, um, if you know what the social justice gospel is, this is a very sharp rebuke to the social justice gospel. The social justice gospel is um, essentially ignore the truth here. And really what, what Jesus is just saying is we should just go out and we should just extend kindness to each other. We should love the poor. We should love the hurting, and that's it. And what's he saying? Something else comes first. Do you know why you're actually doing those things? It's because of the truth of how you have been rescued by God, that you were hopeless and helpless, and Jesus broke into history, and he rescued you and saved you. And what we see in the social justice gospel is, forget all that truth, and we're just going to go be nice to people and help people and feed people and, and do those kinds of things. This is a pretty sharp rebuke to it. And it's a distraction from our real Christian life where we should be, and we start living over here because it can feel like we're living the fullness of the Christian life, and we're not. We sit before we serve. And the third thing is we never need to upgrade the Bible. I hope you're sick of me saying this. We never need to upgrade this. Every time we do, it causes pain and hurt. Every time we do, it's eventually proven to be wrong, and the Bible was, it is proven wrong, our new way of doing it, and the Bible is proven right every time. We never need to upgrade this. I'll just give you a couple examples of this. I think. Hang on. Yeah. How are we talking about gender in our culture today? What do, we don't even know what it is anymore, but think about what we have. We have pockets of our culture where you have um, this patriarchy, like men are here, women are here. And so what's the reaction to that? Let's swing this way and let's have this feminism that, says, that largely says women are here, men are here. That's the cultural reaction. Neither of those is biblical. They're both sexist. 
go read the book, especially of Luke, speaking to a Greek culture where women were secondhand citizens, and look at this. And in this text especially, look at this. Only the men sit at the feet of Jesus and learn. And not only does Jesus say, it's fine if it's Mary here, or just not rebuke her, he says, she has chosen a good thing. This would have been formative in that culture about how God views men and women. And then throughout the Bible, we see children. We have, um, <clears throat> we have some friends that went to, um, uh, I can't say where, they went to Africa. We're not supposed to say the place. They went to Africa to be missionaries, pretty dangerous place. They got there and it was very much, the men were in charge and the women were sort of afterthoughts and they were treated poorly. Um, well, this was a couple and they went there and she actually couldn't say much. He had to do it and he had to lead. And so she's looked and went, okay, we need to talk to them about gender and roles and like do a whole thing from the Bible about what that is. And he said, I have an idea. Let's just share the gospel and let's just share how God created us, male and female, that God created everyone, his desperate love that he has. And let's talk about how God so loved the world. And let's just see what happens. They were there about a year and the interplay between male and female completely changed absolutely 100% change. They didn't do one message about, let me walk through and explain male and female and how you work. All they did was start sharing the gospel because this is what happens. This is what happens. When we start reading this and we start understanding the gospel, this is uplifting of men and women and children. This is the greatest thing that has ever happened to men, to women, and to children. The truth that is in here, and it does not need to be upgraded for our modern sensibilities. Read it and understand it in its context. Figure out what are the timeless truths that come from that, okay? What are the timeless truths there? Some may have been a cultural thing. What is the timeless truth? And just sit under it, submit to it, and believe it. When I read the Bible and it says, love your wife, I go, that sounds great. And then it says, as Christ loved the church. And I go, oh, okay. I'm glad to love my wife. It's easy, like if she's being very lovable, it's easy if I'm in a good mood. It's easy if things are going well in life, but surely you don't mean that if all those things are off, I'm still supposed to love her as Christ loved the church. So I push against that. Instead of going, I don't understand it, I don't like it, but love her as Christ loved the church. God, by your grace, would you help me be this to her? God's been proven right every single time. We talk about, um, <clears throat> you look at the, tech, the, the Bible and you think about how it talks about the radical kindness and love we're to demonstrate to other people. Our world doesn't get that. It keeps trying to improve on it and all it does is fracture us. Civility, how you confront a brother or sister in Christ. Oh, don't do that. It talks about Christians not um, getting involved in lawsuits with each other. Oh, surely that was just back then. Now we're fine. Now we can do whatever. This is how the world works. Or as I alluded to earlier, what about forgiveness? The radical forgiveness that is called for in the Bible, we look today and go, yeah, 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 but surely not him. But surely not her. And that's us trying to say the Bible's pretty good, but I need to upgrade here in a few places and tack some things on. Every time we try and upgrade it, it's proven to be wrong eventually. Our new way of thinking is proven to be wrong and we keep coming back to this. And every time it's upgraded in the name of progress, you know what happens is it leaves hurt people in its wake. 
The word of God is not gonna be taken from us and it will stand the test of time. That's what this passage is about. And so we sit at the feet of Jesus and we learn and we understand his will for us. We learn about him and what he requires of us because somebody can come in and they can take our building, but they can't take the truth of the word of God. Someone may come in and take our nation someday, but you can't take the truth of the word of God. Your family may change, your job may change, your friends may change, your house may change, your address, your, your, everything around you may change, but the word of God will never change. Everything else will pass away. Everything else is going to change, but the word of God stands forever. And so learn this book and the parts that press on us and make us feel uncomfortable, press right back into them and learn them and submit to them and obey them. That's what God is calling us to do. That's what Mary is doing, sitting at the feet of Jesus and humbly listening and receiving his word. We sit before we serve. 